This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is a science podcast for February 4th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, we have contributing correspondent Dennis Normile. We talk about Indonesia's plans for its new capital city on Borneo. Though the city in design is an exemplar of a green urban center, there is concern about unplanned growth in the surrounding areas, which is land full of rare plants and animals. Next, we have researcher John Joe, a professor of environmental engineering at the University of Technology in Sydney. His group wrote in Science Advances on the advantages of on-the-fly emissions testing and how live monitoring of vehicle emissions can help reduce pollution. Indonesia is building a new capital on the island of Borneo, known for its incredible diversity of life, But as contributing correspondent Dennis Normile writes this week in Science, the new city, no matter how eco-friendly in the planning, may be a threat to the surrounding countryside. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Sarah. Why is Indonesia changing its capital away from Jakarta, which has been the capital for decades? They've given a number of reasons. One is that Jakarta is really bursting at the seams. It's overcrowded. The development of the city was really haphazard. Traffic is a mess. Pollution is awful. And one big factor is that it's sinking. Yeah. Some parts of Jakarta are sinking more than 10 centimeters every year. Parts of Jakarta, especially along the northern rim, which is on the Bay of Jakarta shore, is already underwater, protected by seawalls. And there's been a recent study that predicts that by 2050, 25% of the capital area will be submerged. What was appealing about this new site for a new capital city? Part of the reason for moving the capital is to put the capital in a more central location. Jakarta is on the western end of Java, and it's pretty far west. Indonesia, as you know, it's a collection of islands, stretches pretty far from west to east, and Borneo is closer to the center. They also wanted to spur economic development. 
in the eastern islands. And the Indonesian part of Borneo, which is called Kalimantan, is one of the poorer and less developed regions of Indonesia. Some of the concerns about the current capital are environmental. It's pollution. There's the sinking problem, which has to do with planning, but also access to water. So what are some of the plans to prevent these issues at the new site? The new city, Nusantara, is like new capitals that have been built throughout history, going to be completely new. There's no urban development there. It's a complete clean slate. And so they're going to try to make it show how to build a Southeast Asian city from scratch. And they have set very ambitious goals in terms of the use of renewable energy. It's supposed to account for 100% of energy use. All of the wastewater will be treated, which is not the case in Jakarta currently. Every resident will be within a 10-minute walk of green space and on and on. As the urban designer told me, a lot of these goals are aspirational. They've set themselves the goal of achieving these benchmarks by 2045. So they have some time to bring things up to snuff. Some of the advantages, some of the things that they're already doing correctly, is that they're not disturbing existing forestry. They've selected a site that has already been cleared long ago and was used as a production forest, I presume for paper and pulp. And so this is a brownfield site, so they're not contributing to deforestation. They're also going to make use of primarily existing infrastructure, which is in place on the east coast of Borneo, highways, power lines, etc. They're promising to preserve river valleys, not encroach on rivers with new construction. So there'll be these like green fingers reaching up into the hills that will stay green. It sounds pretty ideal. I, I read that there was also going to be convenient public transportation. And you're saying that they're going to have, you know, renewable energy fueling the city. Is that realistic? How big is the city going to be? How much power are they going to be able to make at this point for this size population? The complete reliance on renewable power is one of the aspirational goals. Indonesia's renewable energy industry is still in its infancy. A pretty small percentage, I don't know exactly how much, of Indonesia's energy currently comes from renewables. So that is something they're going to have to ramp up. One of the worries is that in order to plug the gap between when they need the power and when renewable power is available, is that they will rely on coal-fired power plants. East Kalimantan, the province where Nusantara will be built, is known for its coal deposits. And there's already a fair bit of mining that goes on there. And there are a number of proposals to build what are called mine mouth power plants, where they build a power plant right on top of the mine. So that might set back some of the rejection in environmental impact of the city. Another concern that you bring up in this story is the surrounding area. So outside the city where they're not building, none of this sustainability or environmental planning is going to happen. But there are concerns that it will spread past the borders of the city, the population, the industry, that kind of thing. One of the scientists I spoke to has just recently completed a study where his team looked at what happened at previous new capitals like Brasilia. And they found that within a decade, urban sprawl had spread beyond the city limits and was going off in all directions. And that's in the Amazon, right? That's in the Amazon. 
Yeah. And so this is in Borneo, which, you know, has a very high level of biodiversity and, you know, rare animals and plants. Right. And that's just the Amazon. Yeah. The point is that when you build a new city, even if you have strict controls over development within the city itself, those controls often do not extend beyond the city limits. And so the concern is that while the new capital itself will be very green, very sustainable, the developments surrounding that area may not adhere to the same high standards. Yeah. The new city plan was approved in 2022. What are the next steps? What's going to happen in the next few years for this? I understand that some preliminary work in getting the site ready is underway. They have set a very ambitious goal of having enough of the capital built by the 75th anniversary of the founding of modern Indonesia in August 2024. So that gives them just a bit over two years. It's a very tight schedule. I don't think they will have much built by then, but they will probably have enough that they could you know, have some sort of a ceremony if they want. Overall, the project is expected to be built in stages, reaching completion more or less by 2045. Is there a cost estimate for this? There's one figure that has been thrown around as uh, $32 billion U.S. dollars. It's a little unclear whether that covers the entire city or just the governmental core of the city. Are they going to take all the humans that live in Jakarta and move them to the new city, or do they all stay there and they just move the government center and some businesses? Oh, this is strictly for the government administration. They're anticipating that this would have, I think it was 4.5 million people working there. Metro Jakarta has a population of 33 million, maybe more than that. And so this is 4 million people going to work at the new government city. So it's not much. Yeah, one of my sources said it will have minimal impact on relieving the crowding and the environmental challenges that plague Jakarta. What is the country going to do about those problems, that city that will obviously still have plenty of inhabitants? That's a good question. They have had a number of plans to try to address the issue of the sinking. There was a plan which was partially built to build a number of new islands offshore in Jakarta Bay. They would build them up you know, so they'd be above sea level for the time being. And there was also a proposal for a, like a big dike that would go across Jakarta Bay. The idea was that they would be able to block storm surges coming in from the sea, maybe even pump water from behind the dike out into the bay to keep Jakarta high and dry. That plan is currently, has been shelved. One of the recent governors of Jakarta pulled the plug, but people tell me it's not dead, that it could be revived. One of the big problems in Jakarta is that the piping of fresh water does not reach all the residents. Many, many people in homes and many businesses rely on well water that is pumping the aquifers underneath the city dry. And as they dry out, they compress. That is what is leading to the sinking. So Jakarta is trying to extend the piping system to get more people on piped water to hopefully drive down demand for well water. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Sarah. Dennis Normile is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Next up, we have researcher John Joe. He wrote about using remote sensors to capture tailpipe emissions on the road. 
This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. In a lot of places, vehicles are emissions tested for pollutants that can harm human health or for carbon emissions. This is done usually yearly, maybe a little bit less frequently, but emissions aren't the same at all time points. They go up as cars and trucks age or depending on how the vehicle is driven. John Joe is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of Technology in Sydney. His team wrote this week in Science Advances about using remote sensing technology to live monitor vehicle emissions. Hi, John. Hello. Good morning from Sydney. So glad we were able to connect. What kind of emissions are you focusing on here? Are you looking more at carbon and you know greenhouse gas emissions or more health-harming pollutants or a little bit of everything? It's a mixture of different pollutants, including common chemicals such as carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, nitrogen oxides, hydrocarbons, and nitrogen oxides. So these are perhaps the most polluting and the most damaging chemical pollutants. How is this different than other attempts to monitor emissions from vehicles? This is the first report of uh, reverse sensing as the enforcement tool, rather than just a scientific uh, measurement device. Uh, the second point is we have obtained massive data sets from the remote sensing measurement, and this is the first in the world. And thirdly, in our exercise, we have introduced a new remote sensing device measurement so that unless we get a similar or identical results from two different devices, one second apart, then we will decide whether it's, uh, it's in compliance or not. Now, the technology to do this, to use uh, remote sensing to monitor roadside emissions, has been around for a couple decades now. But it seems like more the issue is figuring out how to do it, how to implement it, what kinds of rules to make. So for this paper, you looked at a place where this has been tried. You looked at data from a program in Hong Kong. Can you talk about this program? The Hong Kong EBD or the Hong Kong Environmental Protection Department there are pioneers in terms of promoting the remote sensing technology as a regulatory tool. I think that's perhaps the first in the world. And through the Hong Kong EPD's enforcement program, there's a clear demonstration that high-emitting vehicles are pulled off the road for enforced repair. And then we see a clear reduction in their emission levels and a major increase in the compliance with relevant standards. It's not just monitoring. Vehicle owners are required to make repairs or be deregistered. And that, that was shown to have an impact on pollution levels that people were experiencing. Exactly. So in a way, it's like a closing the loop. Yeah. And I think also that shows that you can go after the biggest offenders and get the most for what you put into the system. Yes, that's definitely important to be able to detect high emitting vehicles. The use of uh, on-road remote sensing is very rapid and they're relatively inexpensive. The per vehicle cost is actually quite low. Mm -hmm. 
there were a lot of decisions that had to be made when this system was rolled out. How do they decide where to put the sensors? The overall strategy is to select sites where there's a high traffic flow. The second principle is to rotate the locations of the remote sensing sites to avoid certain drivers, to try to avoid remote sensing sites. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, they're going to evade the emissions testing, yeah. Exactly. So the sites are never been published. So the public actually never knows where the sites are. So hopefully nobody can avoid being detected. There's all kinds of reasons that a car might start or a truck or a bus might start emitting stuff that we don't want it to. And these sensors can catch that as they drive by. But they are just taking a snapshot, just one time or maybe two time measurement in that short period of time. Is that enough to know that the vehicle is habitually emitting a high amount of emission? What we did in Hong Kong is actually to have two, about a second in time difference. The purpose of that or importance of that is to ensure we get two similar or identical results from the same vehicle. So therefore, our decision about whether it's high polluting or in compliance can be verified by two measurements. And we have, based on the monitoring data in Hong Kong, we have done statistic analysis to ensure the results are reliable in terms of statistic significance. Yeah. And those cutoffs are different for different types of vehicles. Yes. In addition to the remote sensing device, there are other devices. So the number plate reader actually provides a lot of information, such as the maker, the manufacturing year, the fuel type, the vehicle engine size, the acceleration. Each snapshot, we can obtain a lot of those inside information about the vehicle itself. And so then if something is flagged by the system, that vehicle owner is tracked down and they're asked to repair their vehicle or take it off the road? The next course of action is to go to a testing site to do a Hong Kong approved vehicle emission test within 14 days. The large majority, around the 97, 98% of uh, those owners tend to go and get repaired. So over time, as this program was rolled out, can you tell us how much pollution went down? Yes, this is actually reported in the, in the paper in terms of reduction in different pollutants. Let's look at the carbon monoxide between 2012 to 2018. There's around 30% reduction from the LPG taxis. They're most widely used taxi in, in Hong Kong. For petrol vehicles, there's a similar reduction, although slightly less, around 15% reduction. So this shows uh, for the relatively long-term application of on-roadside monitoring using remote sensing, you can see major reduction in the emission of those high-polluted vehicles. What were some of the keys to making this work in Hong Kong? So first of all, you need the government, the enforcement body, to promote it. In this case, the Hong Kong EBD has done a brilliant job in promoting the technology, in educating the people and also the vehicle repair industry. So the Hong Kong EBD actually has been doing regular training sessions for the motor repair industry. The second point is the public understanding of risk from air pollution, particularly vehicle pollution, is actually far less than the public perception of, uh, for example, earthquake, tsunami, or other type of risks. Public perception is also an important factor uh, in terms of decision-making. The Hong Kong government actually has provided subsidies for replacing parts in different vehicles 
they can get the oxygen sensors replaced for free, for example. By doing this, you actually, I mean, the government, there will save a lot of money in terms of curing different air pollution-induced disease. Do you see this as part of a larger approach to monitoring pollution, monitoring emissions from all kinds of transit systems? I think there's a very important role for this system to play. For example, one of the challenges we try to address is how to use this technology to identify high-emitting diesel vehicles. Up to now, the robot sensing technology has been successful, but only in detecting petrol or similar engine-powered vehicles, such as the LPG. But there's still some obstacle to overcome in terms of diesel vehicles. And, and once that's sorted, then we can look at the application beyond road transport. For example, looking at the detecting high-emitting cargo ships. And that's actually a very important question to address. Thank you so much, John. You're welcome. It's, it's our pleasure to be able to uh, speak to the Science Advances audience or even broadly to the general public about uh, vehicle emissions. John Joe is a professor of environmental engineering at the Center for Green Technology in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crusty, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.